It's good to see you guys and have ladies uh, that are mothers. Hey, happy Mother's Day. And uh, we want to uh, just uh, extend that also to all of the mothers that are in Edgewood. We love you. We are so thankful for you. And uh, we pray that today is a great encouragement to you. Uh, I don't know about you, but Mother's Day uh, might be a little stressful for some of you. You might be like, it's, you know, having family over and we got things to do. And we got big plans and all that it makes you a little anxious. And uh, I would, here's my recommendation. If that's you, you get a little stressful, you know, a little bit, uh, a little headache coming on or whatever because of all the Mother's Day plans. Just, hey, grab an aspirin bottle and follow instructions, okay? <laughs> Take two tablets and keep away from children. Some of you will get that later, right? Uh, hey, we are uh, finishing up uh, kind of a series of chapters that Paul has written to the Church of Rome in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 as he's talked about who Israel is. And if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 11. We're going to wrap up this chapter, and then we're going to move on next week and in the following weeks uh, through the rest of uh, the book of Romans. And we're going to move to what's really called the most practical section, Romans chapter 12 through 16. And uh, there's a lot of great things there. Uh, but today we're going to kind of finalize and wrap up this uh, idea that's been happening over the last three chapters regarding Israel and the Gentiles. And so if you are, are new with us, let me just kind of give you a summation of what's happening. Maybe a little bit difficult to track along with, uh, but if so, you can, you can go back to our website and you can watch the messages and kind of follow along and catch up. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul asks the question of the church of Rome. He says, hey, is it, is it the potter's right to be able to mold the clay? Like if the potter is the one in charge, then does he have the right over the clay? Let me ask it to you this way. If God is the creator, does the creation really get a say in what the creator does? Paul makes that case in Romans chapter 9, and he says, listen, even the potter can make different vessels, and he can make one vessel of honorable use, and he could choose to make one of dishonorable use. So he goes, what God does with his vessels, his jars, is really up to him. And what he's talking about in Romans chapter 9 is, is that he created and established the people of Israel, and then it's really his providential will to be able to do what he would like with Israel. So here it is that God created and ultimately established the nation of Israel from Abraham. He made them a people who to love him, but he also warned them that if you fall into idolatry, if you don't obey me, if you don't follow my commands, then he goes, I'm going to set you aside. I'm going to remove you from the homeland. I'm going to bring about feudal ways and it's going to be a challenge for you. And God ultimately fulfilled his word and his purposes. But then Paul establishes the fact that because Israel has been set aside, he also can bring about the salvation to the Gentiles. And in Romans chapter 10, he says, matter of fact, salvation can go to anyone who believes in their heart, confesses with their mouth that he is Lord. And so the idea is the, the, the Israel has been set aside. Now the Gentiles have been raised up and anyone who believes in Christ can have salvation. Paul then goes on in another step and he says, and listen, even though Israel as a whole, the nation has been set aside, you still see that there is a remnant. There are still people that are being saved in that day and time. You see it in Acts chapter 2 that uh, you see Peter preached, and then there were 3,000 added to the number uh, that day. And we can speculate that it was Jews and Gentiles alike, but the reality is, is Paul is just saying, God is doing something, and he's 
He's able to do what he would like. And in this season, we know from Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's put Israel on the side, brought in the days of the, of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, according to chapter 11, have been grafted in to Israel's root, which is the, the original root. And one day, God is going to graft Israel back into their own root, although they've been cut off for now. And God is up to something really big. And it can seem a little bit confusing, but Paul is going to kind of wrap up this idea in chapter 11. And this is what he says. He says, So lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Which really, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 all are a mystery in many ways. And it can be um, a little bit difficult to comprehend or wrap your head around. But he says, listen, in all of it, he goes, don't be wise in your own sight. He goes, don't be, don't be haughty, don't be proud, don't be arrogant. Take heed lest you fall is what we saw last week. So Paul's saying, hey, be careful that you don't stumble like the Jews did. And don't be unaware of what God is doing, this mystery. But what's incredible is, is that as Paul mentions this mystery, he then tells you what the mystery is. So in most mysteries, it's like, hey, here's the mystery, now go solve it. Paul goes, hey, here's the mystery, and here's the answer. So here's the answer. He goes, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, and you can underline the word until, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the fullness, the word there is uh, the, in the Greek is pleroma, which means um, fullness. Uh, it also means fulfilling, or I would even say at the appropriate time. That's a good way to think of it. The, it's the time that God has appointed. So what's he say? He goes, hey, be wise. Don't be arrogant. Don't be unaware of the mystery. What is the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he goes, how long is the hardening, the, the setting aside of Israel, how long is it going to last until God appoints the final time to come into fruition? So let me kind of give you this imagery. If you've been with us for the last handful of months, I've already given you this imagery before. And so for some of you, you're like, well, he just keeps beating this dead horse. But for those of you that are new or have kind of been here the last couple of weeks, um, this is the best way I could explain it. Consider that you have a football team, and on the football team, you have a star quarterback, and the star quarterback is known by everyone. And when you look at him, he's got the height, and he's got the stature, and he's got the strength, and he's got the ability, and he's a guy that everybody looks to. But the problem is this guy that everybody looks to has now become arrogant, conceited. Um, he's uh, made a mockery of himself because he doesn't follow the coaches. He doesn't care what his teammates say or think. He has become, in some ways, caught up in his own self. And the problem is, is that because he's not in the professionals leagues, uh, the coach goes, hey, listen, it's my prerogative to do what I want because I'm the one in charge and they pay me to make decisions and I'm putting you on the bench. And so here it is, the star quarterback, the one who can make all the throws, the one who has all the ability has now been put on the bench. Now listen, that's a brave move by the coach, isn't it? Because now the coach has to go find another quarterback. And he looks across the locker room and he's like, well, I got no one that's as tall as he is. And I got no one that can make the throws that he can make. And I got no one who's got the brilliance or understands the game like he does. But he looks across the room and he goes, but this guy right here will do. Why? Because he's coachable and he works hard and he's trustworthy and his teammates will follow him. And at the end of the day, they look at this guy and he may not look the part, 
But the coach says, he'll do. And they put him in the game and they have as much success with the backup quarterback who's coachable as they did with the starting quarterback who's arrogant. Y'all got that picture? It reminds me a whole lot when Samuel goes to Jesse and they're looking for a new king in Israel and they continue to bring brother after brother and brother and brother in front of them. And Jesse goes, well, it must be this son. He's tall. It must be this son. He's going to be great. And time and time again, Samuel goes, nope, that's not him. The Lord says, that's not him, not him, not him. They go through all these different brothers. And then finally he goes, okay, there's got to be another one left. You brought them all to me, right? And he goes, no, there's one out in the field tending to the sheep. I mean, he's not a looker. He's not, he's scrawny. And God says, look, I don't care about the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And then they bring this little shepherd boy in and his name's David and he becomes the king of Israel. That's what Paul is trying to help Rome see. He goes, listen, God has set the star quarterback, Israel, to the side. And he's going to leave them there until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The pleroma, the, the right time. Now, when you look at the right time, you wonder, well, okay, when is God going to put the starting quarterback in the game? Will that ever happen? I believe it will, and we'll talk through that in a second. But the question is, when? When will it happen? When the coach decides it, it's time. When Israel is ready, God will appoint them at the right time. Now, you might wonder, well, okay, what does that look like to be the right time? Well, let me read these verses for you. You can make you a note of it and you can go see it yourself. But the same idea, this word pleroma, was found at another time and season when the world was appointed by God something to happen. And Paul writes to the church of Galatia in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, and he says this, but when the fullness of time, that's pleroma, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Y'all remember that? Born born by a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Paul says to the Galatians, listen, we were separated, alienated, estranged from God, and then at the fullness of time, when the time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. And when God appointed that, Jesus came. Same exact word, Paul writes to the church of Rome and he says, Israel will be on the sideline until the fulfilling or the fullness of time has come for the Gentiles. Same idea. So what does that mean? It means nothing's happening until God says it does. That's what it means. And that's what Paul was saying. So Israel has been temporarily blinded. One day at the fullness of time, the Jews will realize what they've done. They'll realize the rejection of Jesus. They'll realize that they set the, the Messiah aside, but one day they'll trust him and it'll usher in the kingdom of God. And that's the last days. Verse 26 then goes on and says, and in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so he says, Israel will be saved in this way. And then he tells you um, what the Isaiah, the prophet said, and what Jeremiah, the prophet said. And he quotes Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21. And then he also, when it says, take away their sins, he brings the imagery of the new covenant that Jeremiah promised in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. 
So the idea is that there is going to be a point where Israel is put back in the game, where they're saved. Now, there's two important questions here that you could gloss over in verse 26. And I need you to pay a little bit of attention because probably most of us have never taught, heard, or even thought about this. But when, it looks, when you look at Israel, all of Israel in 26, there's two questions you got to ask. One, who is Israel? And then what is all? Now, the reason I say that is because there's two schools of thought around verse 26. Back in the days of the Reformers, there was a guy named John Calvin. John Calvin believed that in verse 26, that Israel was no longer indicative of Israel found in verse 25, but Israel, all of Israel, in the sense all Israel will be saved, was speaking of something new, like a new Israel. And what he believed was that it referred to as the church. And that anyone who was a part of the church that had experienced the loving kindness of God and forgiveness was a part of the new Israel. And it would make sense that if you're a part of the new Israel, that anyone who is saved is a part of something new. So all Israel would refer to, as John Calvin and some of the other guys, reformers would believe, is that it referred to the church. And so there are a lot of people that the school of thought is that the church today actually has replaced old Israel. Okay, And that's a school of thought. And, and I'll tell you um, that as you look in and you explore all the things that there are that go along with these concepts, uh, there are some really incredible things to learn. And even as you learn those things and you discover what that means, um, there's a lot of things that are life-giving in that. And there are a lot of things that I couldn't argue with. And obviously, there's a lot of people that would believe in that idea that are way more intelligent than I am. But I happen to believe a different school of thought, and I believe that in verse 26, that the other school of thought would be this, is that Israel in 26 is the same as Israel in 25, and that all of Israel doesn't necessarily mean everyone, but it means the nation as a whole. But listen, both of those are respectable views, and I would even tell you this, that I think oftentimes in the, the local church, if we're not careful, we can major on, on minors, and, and we can make things that we are absolutely not concretely aware of or sure of, we can make it too big of a deal. And I would say, we're just going to be careful about that. And so we can debate, and we have conversation, and we can love one another well over a cup of coffee, but at the end of the day, we have to continue to ask the question, what is important enough to break fellowship over? And what I would tell you is this, there is nothing outside of the essential doctrines to break fellowship over, and this certainly is not one of them. And that's in my humble opinion. So what I'm saying is this, when you get to 26, you just got to decide, is that talking about the church today or is that talking about Israel? Now listen, if it's talking about the church today, that means the starting quarterback never gets back in the game. And that's what you have to decide. Does the starting quarterback ever get back in the game or God runs all the way to the end of time with the backup quarterback? I happen to believe, and I think it's been demonstrated over chapter 9, 10, and 11, that God is using the backup quarterback, the scrawny guy, to make the big guy jealous. That eventually the starting quarterback goes, man, I'm tired of missing out. I'm tired of my team holding trophies and I didn't get to contribute to. I'm re- I'm, coach, I'm ready to be coachable. God, I'm, I'm ready to see what I haven't been able to see. That's my take on 26. So when you see 26, I personally believe that it's talking about the same Israel that we've been talking about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and that you see explicitly there in verse 25. 
that a personal hardening has, has come upon Israel. That's nation. That's ethnically, spiritually, all of it. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then I believe Israel is Israel. And I also believe that all is not necessarily referring to all, but the whole. Um, a great scholar, F.F. Bruce, um, a guy that I've read a lot of and one of the New Testament scholars of the world, um, said this. Um, he says, all of Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without a single exception, but Israel as a whole. So when you see all, it can refer to a nation and not necessarily all. I think that goes hand in hand with what Zechariah the prophet prophesied about hundreds of years earlier in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. Look at Zechariah's language. And when I say his language, look at what the, the nation of Israel will do at some point. It says this, And I, that's God, will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And they'll weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Zechariah says there's going to be a day in time where Israel sees what they have done to the Messiah. There's going to be a day when Israel as a whole, the nation, repents. They're going to recognize they pierced Jesus, that he was indeed the Messiah, the Son of God, that they did indeed reject him as a nation. And God is going to bring about in the last days at the fullness of time when he appoints, he's going to bring back a return of the nation. And when that happens, there's going to be tears and there's going to be mourning and there's going to be distress because the nation will have realized how far they had parted from what God's original intention was. I think that's what Paul is saying. Verse 28, as we pick up, he says, and as regards the gospel, he says, they're enemies for your sake. So who are, who are they? And he says, to me, if you see it as Israel, he says, Israel has been disobedient. He goes, they've been foolish. They've been children of wrath. And he goes, and it's been to your benefit. So he says, because the gospel, he goes, in regards to it, he goes, Israel's an enemy. And he goes, it's for your sake. Then he says, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So he goes, listen, even though Israel rejected Christ and it's been for your sake that you were a part of the goodness and the kindness of God and his benevolence, he sought forth to bring you a Gentile into salvation. He goes, at the same time, he goes, as regards to election, he goes, they're still the beloved. He goes, they're still the ones who for the sake of their forefathers are the apple of God's eye. And when you read it like that, you, what you realize is that even though God for a time has set aside Israel in disobedience, he goes, he hadn't forgotten them. And maybe you're here and you're, as, you're an American, you've always wondered, well, why is it that so many conservatives keep talking about Israel? Why is it that, that people base presidential elections based off of a response of a president on what they'll do with Israel? Have you ever known that or wondered that? And here's why is because there's many conservative people in the nation who would say God's original people were Israel. 
And they base that off of passages like Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and Genesis chapter 17. But in Genesis chapter 12, when he brings Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going I'm to I'm protect you. And he goes, and I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. Everyone from there, from the dawn of time, since Israel's elect has, has, has come forth, anyone who ever came up against Israel, guess what happened? They got obliterated afterwards. That was true of the Babylonians. It was true of the Assyrians. It was true of the Medes. It was true of the Persians. It was even true of the great Romans. And it's been true of every other nation since. So why do people care about what happens to the nation of Israel? Because they are God's beloved. God has them as the apple of their eye. And so Paul says, listen, for your sake, Israel was set aside. In their disobedience, he goes, you've had salvation. But he goes, God hadn't forgotten the apple of their eye. God hadn't forgotten his elect nation. He hasn't turned his back on them. He's just waiting with patience. Matter of fact, verse 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And when you see that word irrevocable, it brings about this idea and imagery in my mind, which is immutability. And when you think about immutability, it means that there's the inability to change. And listen, you and I change from time to time. Some of you change clothes four times a day. <laughs> we change seasons, we change jobs, we change all these things. But the thing about the scriptures is we have a God who cannot change. It actually goes against who he is and his character. And so he is irrevocable. So that means that he called Israel and ultimately he is still committed to Israel even in the midst of their idolatry. I think two classic ways that you could see that even in scripture, I think you see that best with Hosea and his wife Gomer. I think Hosea is a picture of God's immutable character. Hosea refuses to change even though he has an unfaithful wife. And I think you see it also just in the response of God and his calling to a nation in which he says, even though you committed adultery against me, I will woo you back. And I see that in Israel. So you see these great characteristics of who God is. Verse 30 then goes on and says, and for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too, verse 31, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. So he goes, here's God's grand plan. They were disobedient and you got mercy. You got mercy and in their disobedience, they'll get mercy. What? <laughs> That's craziness. I don't even understand. And here's the point. God goes, you're not, you're not supposed to. It's a mystery. You can't wrap your head around it. It reminds us of Isaiah 55, that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's ways are too lofty for us. But here's what he says. He goes, you were, you were disobedient, but you received mercy because Israel was disobedient. He goes, they're disobedient and I've given you my kindness. And so they're going to be impacted by the mercy I showed to you. And he goes, and I'll show them mercy. And then he says this in verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul says, at the end of the day, even though God is doing this incredible work, 
He goes, you could just boil it down to this fact, though. All, all need mercy because all are sinners. And so he says, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, at the end of the day, he goes, you still need God's mercy. And he says, and at the end of the day, God's mercy is still available. But if you remember, and you've been with us for quite a few months, you remember the argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 3, and he just asks the question, are, are the Jews greater than the Gentiles? And let's put it for you up on the screen so you can see it. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 12, Paul says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we are already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, no one is righteous, not one. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul is just reiterating his point. He goes, listen, unless God calls, he goes, we're dead in our sin. If God doesn't use his spirit to draw us to himself, he goes, we're enemies of wrath. We're estranged. We're alienated. We're confused. He goes, we need God's kindness because we are not righteous. There's not one of us. Jew, Greek, slave, free, woman, man, doesn't matter. None of us are good apart from God. And so all the goodness we have is from God. Which then brings us to the closing of this, this idea that we've been exploring over the last few chapters where Paul just says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Thomas Constable says it this way, um, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and has great commentary. He says, God's wisdom is his ability to arrange his plan so it results in good for both Jews and Gentiles. In his own glory... His knowledge testifies to his ability to construct such a plan, and his decisions spring from logic that extends beyond human ability to comprehend. His procedures are so complex that humans cannot discover them without the aid of divine revelation. So he goes, God is doing things in Jews and Gentiles alike, but all of them result in the praise and the honor of his own glory. All of these things, this knowledge, this ability to construct these crazy plans that you and I can't comprehend, ultimately spring forth from his character. And it's beyond our ability to understand, comprehend, or even reason. But what's crazy is, is that God didn't leave us alone without divine revelation. Do you all know that? And so you might ask the question, well, okay, but where do I start if I'm struggling with something that seems mysterious or I'm struggling to know what it is that God wants me to do? Remember, the question, as we talked about last week, and we'll reiterate more next week, I don't think is about what God wants you to do as much as who he wants you to be. And what does he want you to be? He wants you to be a person that resolves yourself to be more like Christ. And as we become more like Christ, I can't help but think that we have to grow in the depth of his riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, that we have to understand more about his unsearchable judgment his inscrutable ways, and they're found in God's word. We discover more about who he is and about his character the more that we dive into the central part of who he is through his word. But I'll tell you this, it's not that he just gave you his word. He also decides to give you his people. And friends, I want you to understand that 
that's not something I just want to encourage you in. It's not something that we here at Stone Point just require of those who are members, but it is something that I want to live out even in our own family. So I have, I have one of my children in our house who desires to buy um, some very expensive shoes. And when I say expensive shoes, I'm not talking like $50. That's what I think is expensive as far as a shoe, okay? I'm like, just give me some $35 shoes. I'm going run, to run with it, you know? Uh, these shoes are anywhere from $160 to 200 bucks for a pair of shoes, okay? And uh, they're sweet looking. And, and here's the thing. I would never, listen, I would never buy them. And the reason I would never buy them is because I'm cheap. <laughs> but for a young man or a young woman who has four or $500 and they're, it's burning a hole in their pocket and they're looking for things to spend, it's like, hey, what do I do? Now, here's the deal. I go, okay, well, let's turn to God's word. What's he say about buying tennis shoes? <laughs> and he says a lot about buying tennis shoes. He says a lot about spending money. But I go, listen, can I just, I'm going to step out of dad role for a moment because I get it. You already have made up your mind about what dad is and dad and I are, dad and you are on different places. So I'm like, hey, let's take it a little further. Let's get it out of dad's court. And I need you to, I need you to name one man in our body that you trust and you know loves you and loves you enough to have a genuine conversation with you about what, whether or not this is wise. And so, my family member who's looking at these shoes named a guy named Charlie McMath. And he goes, I'll, I'll talk to Charlie about it. And I'm like, get after it. And here's the deal. Look, here's what I want you to understand, friends. Lean in with me. He picked the person and I'm not hoping to win. That's not the goal. The goal is not to win. The goal is not to talk somebody in community out of something necessarily. The goal is, have you sought God's word and have you sought to listen to another point of view? All too often, we never understand the unsearchable ways of God or his judgments because you don't care about them. You don't want to know what somebody says about taking a new job. You don't want to ask somebody about the new position that you're considering. And you, you know for sure what they would say about it. They, you don't have the margin. You don't have the time. It wouldn't be wise. But friends, listen, how challenging sometimes do we make life because we will not search after God's desire for who we are to be, which changes what we should do. Now, the reason I lean into that text in that way is because it's extremely practical for not just me and a family member, it's practical for you. And the reason it's practical is because his riches and wisdom and knowledge are vast and they're great, but listen, they're available to you and me. And that's what's incredible. Yes, we can't understand the mind of God, but we can seek to grow in his character. We can seek to have a better view. We can seek to have a better understanding. At the end of the day, you and I aren't going to understand completely because we're finite and fallible and we're on the wrong side of heaven. But Paul also makes that clear in verses 34 and 35. Look what he says. He goes, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? No one. So am I looking to fully understand? Am I going to come to you and say, well, God gave me this special revelation that fell out of heaven that 
Like probably not, but I'm going to use God's word as, as wisdom. Have I been the Lord's counselor? Is it my prerogative to tell the Lord what to do because I know better? No. So he quotes Isaiah on that one in chapter 40, verse 13 and 14. Then he goes to Job on verse 35. Job had a couple of conversations with God. Verse 35, who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Are you going to repay the Lord for anything? No. The Lord doesn't need to be repaid because ultimately he doesn't owe you and I anything. Which friends, if we could grasp our, just our minds around that very concept there. How many Christians leave the church because, or leave the faith in some ways because we cannot believe that God didn't give us what we believe we needed or desired? And so Paul just says, look, he doesn't need to be repaid. If he gives you all that you deserve, all you get is wrath, condemnation, and a good dose of hell. But he goes, he's been kind to you, right? So because of his kindness, it's not about who repays who. But then he closes with this, and we'll wrap this up. And he goes, but it's for from him and through him and to him that are all, that are all things, and to him be glory forever. He goes, if you understand what God is doing, and that he doesn't need your advice, and, and you and I can't repay him, but we are blessings from him and through him and to him, that changes everything. Matter of fact, it leads great into Romans chapter 12, in which we'll start next week with verses 1 and 2 only. But let's just consider from him. What's from him? Paul writes to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And just as he talks about God dwelling in bodily form, about Jesus, he goes, It is for by him, meaning Jesus, that all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So everything we see and even the things we don't see are from him. They're from him. And ultimately, all of them you could see there are not just from him, but they were created through him and for him. So we see that they're through him as well. But let's also consider this text as we think about through him. Think about what Paul wrote in his first letter to his friend Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. He says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So here it is. Everything we see and even the things we don't see are from him, but then you go, well, okay, but how are we reconciled? Well, he has, there's one man who is a mediator for us. His name is Jesus. So everything that's created by him and for him and through him is ultimately supposed to be reconciled to him through Jesus. So it's from him and it's through him. And ultimately, Paul says to the church of Rome, it's also to him, to him. And when I think about to him, I think about Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 in love. God, he predestined us for adoption to sonship as sons through Jesus Christ. We see that according to the purpose of his will. We see that. Do you see that? Just in Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, we see where it's from and we see who it's through. It's from God. It's through Jesus. Look at verse 6. 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Friends, our Bible will continue to point us back that everything we have is from God. Our reconciliation and our life and the things that God desires us to be is through his son, Jesus Christ. And we receive those things for the praise of his glory. To him are all things, including you and including me. And so that means that whatever we do with our lives, whether it be in word or deed, as Paul says to the Colossians, he goes, whatever it is, he goes, do it all for the glory of God. And so even as you walk out of this place, I'm sure you have plans and you're in a fellowship with mom and may grab a fishing pole or may plant some flowers, may enjoy a little time by the pool, whatever it is. Can, can you and I please begin to resonate in our hearts and our heads that there's not a separation of what we do now in this place and what we are outside of this place? Because all of it is from him, through him, and to him. And that means your will, your life, and your way all being conformed back to the image of a holy, righteous God. And he uses every aspect of our life, even the things we don't understand, to bring about his sovereign purposes in our life so that our lives result in the praise and the glory of God's grace in our lives and through our lives. And so friends, when we say and conclude our worship every week, we say, go have a great week of worship. We are saying, go and make your life matter, even if you're not singing, because singing is one aspect of our worship. But there are many ways we worship to the glory of God. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you work. It matters who you are to the praise of his glory. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your text. We thank you for your your word and the way that it encourages us, I pray that you would help us, God, to be more like you and that we would recognize that our lives are from you and our reconciliation is through you. And to you are all things, especially our praise to you forever. And I pray, Lord, that we would allow that to resonate in our hearts and our minds but more than that that it would change our will and our direction for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.